The text we're in is a short little part of the parables in Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 26. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He uh, sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces, uh, produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the air, And when the grain is ripe, at once he, or the man, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. I was reading a story this week by Matthew Peralt. He was the uh, associate dean at Trinity University uh, International. And he was talking about students that come into their campus and come for training. They recognize that they're not all perfect and nobody is. Uh, But the problem is when you have a community like that, especially in schools, most of them have some kind of standards of conduct. And so it was difficult for some students to come in there, depending on their background, as to how they conduct themselves. But they had to have moral standards. So in this particular case, he references things like, well, we asked our students not to be smoking or drinking on campus. And uh, if some of them that was part of their life or they struggle with that, that sometimes would create a scenario where they would have to discipline them. But he came up with this idea, rather than discipline in the sense of punishment because you won't obey the rules, to find something different. And if a student struggled with meeting those standards, those community standards, they created a program or a ministry called the Restoration Program. I don't know if that's the right best term for it, but that's what they did. And what they did is they took a student who was struggling and they put them together with another student who really cared about individuals who could walk in the journey and help provide some help in terms of conforming to the community standards of the school. And as they moved through this, they found out that it really was exceptional to, rather than just tell people they had to conform to a a set of rules, to help people be mentored by individuals who would help them discover God's grace. It's, it's a remarkable picture, I think, of what we are called to do for one another, but it's also how we need to engage the world. As he works through this, he uh, um, made this comment at the end of this statement or this story that I was reading that was this. What a humbling privilege it is to be entrusted with these fragile lives and these students' desire to grow in Christ. Through the process, they are committing to us and we're also committing to them. Now, that may sound fairly simple and maybe even pedestrian to you in terms of the journey of life, but it matches very well one of the greatest privileges God gives to us is to be in the journey with other believers and with people that don't know Christ. We don't always have as much problem with being in the journey with other believers. I mean, most churches have their small groups and community groups and discipleship groups and activities and men's and women's events, so we don't always have a lot of trouble, in spite of all the busyness of our schedule, hanging out with other believers. Although in these days, you know, even that's sometimes a challenge. But the other element of it is moving alongside people in the world who don't know Jesus and caring enough about them to not just dump a requirement upon them, but to help them see God's grace. And this text, I think, reminds us, even though it has a number of different uh, interpretive elements to it that might be controversial, there are some elements here that I think remind us of our privilege that God has given to us in being part of God's work of of the kingdom of God in the here and now. As I mentioned before, the text may have some different things that are controversial. There are certain observations or questions that come up about this. For instance, does the one who is sowing, does that represent Jesus, Or is that somebody else? 
And one of the challenges that are there is that if you follow the individual through this text, they seem to be very ignorant and sort of unengaged with the, the whole part of the mission, the, the harvest, until it comes time for actually harvesting, which doesn't sound like Jesus at all. And so the other questions is that the word casting or scattering is very different than we saw earlier in the parables, especially the parable of the seed and the sower, which literally comes out and says that they sowed the seed. It has a very intentional, systematic sense that someone who, like a farmer, has the skill and the wisdom and the experience to know that there's a special way to sow seed and to make sure that it's planted properly so that it has the best chance of thriving. This word is not the same word. The word here is to, to cast, literally to throw something. Um, and it's, so it has a different flavor as if it's just sort of anybody. It, it, in fact, the word isn't even used here of a sower, it's just if a man or a person simply scatters seed, like it's almost as if they're indifferent to it. By the fact that they're going to harvest at the end of it would seem to indicate that maybe it's more than just a man, it might be a farmer, but the idea here is not very technical in terms of actually sowing seed. What really is the emphasis of this parable? As you look through it, I picked up a number of themes that commentators would pick on. It's, is it about the patient farmer? Is it about the reaper, the person who's reaping? Or is it the unbelieving farmer? Is, is it really depicting this farmer, this individual, as, well, I don't really think anything's gonna happen, and some have interpreted it that way. Because of the nature of the parables that have come before, I think a lot of the focus is on the seed but it's not exclusively there. In fact, what I think this parable is talking about is really, in a sense, how God's kingdom work actually fleshes out in, in the here and now. And we'll walk through that to try to figure out the nature of this as we look at it, but I wanna look at the front end where it talks about the man who scatters seed. There are basically four statements that are made about him. He's the man who casts seed. I don't believe it was a reference to Christ because the rest of it seems like the man has no idea how this is going on and how it's working and he's sleeping half the time. That doesn't sound like Jesus at all in terms of the nature of his own kingdom work. So it's not likely a reference to Jesus and it, it's probably most likely a reference to servants. Individuals who have, like his disciples, been changed by being in contact with Jesus and as you see the movement of Jesus, even in the earlier chapters, he's calling people to him so that they become fishers of men, so that they become part of the mission that Christ has come to inaugurate. The word, as I said, cast or scattered, is not the same kind of technical thing, so it's not looking for the expert. It's looking for a person who's willing to see the value of the seed and the importance of scattering it. So it sort of takes the idea that you have to be a professional farmer if you can sort of hear where I'm going with this, it's obviously that there's lots of Christians even today who sort of relegate the idea of scattering the seed, the gospel of Jesus Christ in other people's lives, to the experts, to the pastors and the people with the gift of evangelism and to the evangelists. And yet the text of this tone doesn't have any professionalism to it. It's about a man, a person, who simply chooses to say, I'm gonna scatter the seed. So there's no degree that you need to make this happen. One of the great problems you and I face is because of our own insecurities and fears, it becomes a great excuse or a loophole to say, you know, and I don't know if you've ever heard this, if God wants the, the mission of the gospel to, to succeed, he doesn't need me to do it. Which, taken in the right context, that's true. 
but usually it's stated to me in the context of saying, I have no interest in doing this, it scares me to death, I don't know any non-Christians, and I'm not interested in getting any, to know any non-Christians. And, and so one of the things that confronts is the reality that I believe is consistent through the rest of the parables and even through the rest of the teaching of Jesus and the example he set, is that anyone who claims to be a believer in Jesus has the privilege, not the duty, the privilege to be involved in the mission of Jesus and scattering the seed. So when we look at this, I wanna see if you can put yourself in this story. I wanna see if you can sort of identify a little bit with the, the nature of simply being a person who may scatter seed. You may not be an expert, you may not have a degree, but it doesn't take much. I, I, if I was really trying to make the point, I'd say, if someone put a bag of seed in front of me, even a nitwit like me could pick it up and throw it around. It doesn't take much to do that. Even if I do a bad job of it, I can still pick it up and I could probably hit some of you in that back row over there if I had the right kind of seed. And so the, the weight of this parable starts to say, Jesus, Jesus is on mission and as the way of the, Bill Murray in the way of the long cider says, it's a mission for amateurs. It's for the ordinary individual who would seem to have a heart, not of a leader or a pastor or a teacher or an evangelist, but as Jesus demonstrates all the way through the Gospel of Mark, the requirement for this is you have to have a heart of a servant. You have to have a, the heart of a servant who's willing to say God's will is more important than my comfort that his purpose is more important than my insecurities, that the mission of the gospel is more important than my conveniences and my comfort levels. Because, but only those who really have a servant's attitude is gonna get this. Because there's lots of Christians who, because of fear or other things, would say, no, if God really wants this done, he doesn't need me to do it. And we'll see an element of that in this process. But the question I wanna ask you is, when was the last time you scattered any seed of the gospel or the seed of any kind of spiritual discussion with someone who didn't know Jesus? When was the last time you had the privilege to do that? I know myself, I spent years going, well, you know, I had a busy week, I just didn't run into any unbelievers. Until someone got in my face and said, well, the reason you don't meet any unbelievers is because you've sheltered your life into your own routines and you will never meet any unbelievers. Which I was a little annoyed at because they're sort of questioning my spirituality, I thought. Then Jesus and I had a discussion and I lost. And so the, the, the idea here is not only is he an individual that can cast seed, and that's really all the requirements are, is if can you cast the seed. But then it seems in the parable to say, well this man sleeps and rises day and night. What an interesting statement. Boy, that guy's on the job. He's, he's on mission. But the point is really to say that as part of this great privilege that we have with God, God knows that we can't be on mission like he can. Oh, you run into all kinds of different personality types and giftedness. You've got the workaholics who are doing this constantly. Lots of them end up being missionaries on the field and those kind of things. But most of us live in our own neighborhoods and go to work in a place where we have normal schedules and routines. And the point of this thing where it says the man sleeps and rises day and night is that he's got other things in his life that he's responsible for. 
He's, he's got sort of certain routines, and there's a passing uh, process of life that, that is pretty ordinary. And, and it doesn't mean that he has to be like on top every single moment of the day because he has to sleep and he's got other responsibilities to do. And, and, and it shows in somewhat uh, this context that if we're committed to casting the seed, we have to realize that this whole process doesn't all depend on me. And God knows that because we're just flesh. We're finite human beings that he created and he knows that we can't function the way he does. And yet there are lots of individuals that we'll discover, I think as we go through this, who have a God complex to think that they have to manage all the variables when it comes to the mission of Jesus. And we actually end up stepping out of the privileged responsibility that God gives to us. And in fact, what it almost says is that we start trying to do God's job for him because either we don't think he's good enough to do it or we don't trust him to do it by trying to make things happen in ways that's not part of his process. But I want you to notice that there's limitations on how much we control in the process of the mission. How does it start? I don't know, if you can pick up a bag of seed and throw it, that's, that's the privilege. What happens after that? <laughs> I'm tired, I wanna go home and sleep, I gotta get up and do some other responsibilities in life. Well, aren't you sloughing off because you're not like on point every second of the day? It doesn't seem to be. But what we do not understand or is that we don't control everything that happens once we cast the seed. There's, there's a role that we have, and, but it's limited. But we get in trouble if we think that we have to take on a role when it comes to the seed to make the seed more attractive to people. You ever run into situations like that? Well, I know we're gonna go to these people and we have to understand everything about them. And there's certain aspects of that that's fine, but then we get into this idea that we, unless we make the gospel more attractive, that we, that we try to market it up so it looks really polished and cool, then people won't respond to it. Now, I bet this is a bit perfunctory, but the idea is I don't see that the, the man has to polish up and market the seed so that the soil will respond to it. And we can get into the danger of not only trying to manufacture the gospel, but we can turn it into a marketing product. Where like if we're going to this group of people, we gotta market it in a certain way so that it'll be more attractive. Now that doesn't mean we have to communicate to people in a way that's relevant to where they live. I mean when I go, Barb and I have gone to Mexico and they speak in Spanish, I catch a few words, but boy, if they were sharing the gospel with me, I wouldn't get much of it. So there's an element of saying, listen, we've got to communicate the gospel, but really it's not much more than just casting seed. Once we understand the language and where they're at, we don't have to doctor up or manufacture or try to coerce or market or sell the gospel. We're just supposed to cast it. And unfortunately what happens is you'll run into churches who try to turn it into a marketing plan. Now there's nothing wrong with individuals who are high level producers and they, their real desire is we've gotta get this gospel in front of as many people as possible. And they make the, a lot of us look like we're snoozing. Of course the danger for them is they think everybody else is snoozing when that may not be true at all. And so the, the idea comes down to not only does this man have a normal routine in life where he sleeps and rises and he does his work and has other responsibilities, but he hasn't failed. 
because he's doing that. If he's regularly casting seed and having spiritual conversations and communicating the gospel that God brings into their sphere of influence, he's on target. But then it says the man doesn't know how the seed produces life. You know, it tells us simply that it sprouts and produces a leaf, and it says the man doesn't know how. Now, the typical response these days is, well, we have the science that we know exactly how that happens, which so profoundly misses the point that it's hardly even worth mentioning. The issue isn't how we learn to know how to manufacture all this and figure out every context. The issue is, you and I don't understand the mystery of the gospel and how it changes the heart of an individual. We think we do, that's why we get into marketing plans and everything else, because we want to make it attractive and we want to get there, and rather sowing the seed, we have massive marketing to get it to people, and they hear the marketing thing, but they don't see the life change. They just feel like like we're just selling another product. And what it tells me in this is that there is a lot that you and I will never really understand when it comes to the responsibility of scattering the seed. And yet it's the very reason why many Christians never scatter seed because they go, well, I I just don't think I know enough. I I don't know how to answer all their questions. I wonder if they get frustrated at me. I don't know, run, I, I don't know. But we, we come up with this massive amount of excuses why we, and the text says, you're not gonna know everything. You don't know necessarily how it works, you don't necessarily know all the answers, you don't understand how the, the gospel actually changes the heart. Don't worry about it. If we worry simply about scattering the seed and demonstrating God's grace and love, The text says it's okay to go to sleep at night if you didn't touch 3,000 people this day, and you're good. Because the seed does its own work that we'll look at in a minute. But the success of the gospel in this particular note of the text doesn't depend on how you present it. It, I mean, unless you're being really rude and disrespectful, it doesn't depend on us controlling the environment or the context or the way that we say it in, in, in other terms, it literally has this very generic sense, all that we have to learn to do is cast the seed. Just deposit it in people's lives. It doesn't matter whether you're good at it or not, just deposit the truth. And by the very fact that we don't do that says, we have a very high view of ourselves and it's all up to me to do it, and we stop trusting God and the power of the gospel to do it. So again, I want to ask you the question, when was the last time you sowed the seed of the gospel in someone's life? When did you have a really meaningful spiritual conversation with somebody that you got a chance to talk to them about God's love and grace? We often get focused on all the wrong things for all the wrong reasons, and we want to spend years and years and years trying to know the stuff that we're not going to know, and we never get around us casting the seed. And so the purpose of God's servants is finally where he says, well, the, it, when this all gets ripe and grows, he picks up a sickle, a sickle, which sounds weird to us, but anyway, a harvesting tool, and he goes out and harvests the grain because it's now ripe unto harvest. 
But I want you to just get a feel for the overwhelming sense that our great privilege for three quarters of this is scatter seed and do life well. Scatter seed and go to bed, get up in the morning, do your responsibilities, scatter more seed, go home, get some sleep, get up in the morning, do your responsibilities, scatter more seed. And if we get in our mindset the reality that in some respects our role is extremely limited and yet essentially essential in terms of scattering seed, it takes an enormous amount of pressure. I heard a uh, video on YouTube or something the other day and the gentleman was talking about, well, people who run into people that are very different have lots of things that we would, may not agree with. wonder if you run into someone who's a homosexual. Well, we might want to try to answer all the questions about that theologically, but his response is, well, God loves you and wants a relationship with you. wonder if you're running into someone who's bisexual. Well, the idea is, God loves you and wants a relationship with you. wonder if this person has been in prison. Well, God loves you and wants a relationship with you. He wants you to submit to him through faith in the promise of God, and he'll forgive your sins and teach you what righteousness really looks like. It doesn't matter whether you're a single parent or you're a senior, you're retired or just starting work, you've got your own business or work for somebody. The issue is God calls ordinary individuals to scatter the seed to people around them. And so we've often overcomplicated the mission and the work of God's kingdom because we start thinking we have to control all kinds. Is it helpful to learn apologetics? Sure, absolutely. Is it, is it important to learn how to share the gospel? For me, that's always a bit of a weird oxymoron. If you've trusted Jesus, the only way you can trust Jesus is if you understood some sense of the gospel. If you can't re-explain what you've done in your personal life in accepting the gospel, then how do you share the gospel with anyone? Seemed to work pretty well here this morning. And yet it's amazing how many Christians go, well, I just, I don't know how to share the gospel. I always jokingly say, well, maybe we just need to have a come to Jesus meeting and I'll share the gospel with you so you know how to do it by first accepting it. (laughs) But what we have to realize is that God's kingdom work has a limited role for us as ordinary individuals, but there's also the power of the seed itself. And you'll notice there's five statements here that I pick up in terms of the seed, and we'll deal with a couple of them here. The seed sprouts and grows, and the earth produces the seeds and growth by itself. Now, it's a really fascinating word here. That word, depending on your English text, will have it written different ways. But the word, our English word that we get from this idea of the, the earth produces this growth by itself is our word automatically. The Greek word sounds almost identical to it, automatos. And the idea is it's pertaining to something being self-caused or possibly without evident cause, and it's the idea of having to, uh, to do with working by itself without anyone operating it. So for instance, the camera in your iPhone or whatever you've got tends to adjust focus and brightness automatically because and we know that because most people's pictures are fabulous and 
most people aren't that coordinated. When we were on our trip through the Rocky Mountains with my mom, my brother had, uh, I think it's an iPhone 14 or something, it has the three, cam- whatever, the three cameras, and his pictures were astronomically better than ours, and we thought we had good cameras. And he didn't have, he just points and shoots, and these things come out like HD, you know, whatever. Why? Well, it's not because of my brother and his sophistication with setting all the settings, although that helps. It just adjusts automatically. I mean, there's other things. You and I breathe automatically. We don't have to think about breathing. It just happens automatically. Our brain operates automatically. Common sense, well, maybe not so much. There are some things that work automatically and some things absolutely do not work automatically. But what the text is saying is that when the seed's put in the proper ground, it literally, all by itself, automatically will produce life. And the the picture here is that to some degree, the man, the farmer, whatever, has nothing to do with that, at least in terms of the point of the parable. Now, I suspect if he's a farmer that he cultivates and fertilizes and does all kinds of other things, but the idea is no matter what he does, he still can't manufacture that life that's produced by the seed. And one of the things we have to remember is that the seed is powerful. It produces life, not me. It's not whether I can wow people with a message and they're all like crying by the time we're finished. I mean, I can try to do that, and sometimes it works, but that's not the point. The issue is the seed, as Paul said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe to the Jew first and then to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And it makes me want to run out on the highway and throw seed at passing cars to just see what happens. You know, if a giant beanstalk sprouts under the car and lifts it right off the road or down the road, you know that it worked kind of thing. But we've lost that sense of enthusiasm. We've often lost that sense of energy, that anticipation that the seed is powerful and that's what changes people's lives. And we've made it all about us. Well, I just don't know any non-Christians. Well, I just, I don't know really what quite to say. I just don't know how to present it properly. But you'll notice as you follow through the text, it makes four statements. The seed produces first the blade. I don't know why we need to know that, but it says then the seed produces the head of the grain, then the seed produces the full grain, then the seed becomes fully mature, it's ready for harvest. Now what's the point of all that? I believe what it's saying is this sense that when the seed is sown in the person's life, even though they're not a believer, that the, the, the power of the gospel starts working in their life to bring them to a point where they'll make a decision to receive Jesus. It takes time. I mean, sometimes it, it may seem automatic, but even when a, you sit down with somebody and they make a decision to accept Christ, it's likely that they've gone through all kinds of things in life where the, the work of the Spirit and the power of the seed of the gospel has been messing with their head and touching their heart and changing the way they think and disrupting their worldview in terms of what it is to bring them to a point where they're kind of like, wait a minute, this now makes sense. And we get the privilege to sit down and harvest a life with somebody simply because God put us there at the right time. 
Now, sometimes I've been in a relationship with a person a long time. We're going to see in a minute. Sometimes we get to step in in somebody else's work, and we get to reap the benefits of a whole bunch of things God has done in their life up to that point. I know I've told you the story of my dad, who didn't accept Christ till he was 63. He was a moralist, went to church, but the moment we swept over to a Bible-believing church, my dad didn't want anything to do with it. He watched Billy Graham crusades with us and actually made fun of them because he said, well, it's all a setup. They're just, they're just marketing it. They're just having people go forward to get people started. Yada, 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 yada. We dealt with that for years. I even had a great conversation with my dad. I know some of you have heard it, but I sat down one time and dad says, well, the Bible is simply a set of rules to govern society. I said, how's that working? It would be more than one time my dad would sit there and watch the TV and say, you know, I remember one time he says, they ought to take all those people out to an island and just shoot them. That may sound fine, but for a moralist, that's the way you solve the problem, is when you get immoral people doing evil things, you just eliminate them from the gene pool. But when he got cirrhosis of the liver, the morality of the Bible didn't help very much. And the reality that he was facing death over a two-month period, God it worked in his life to the point when the nurse walked in on Thursday before the Monday that he died, and apparently she shared the gospel just by simply saying, are you ready to die? And suddenly God, my dad wasn't quite so sure and accepted Christ. And, and so as we begin to work through this process, we can't force the gospel to do something. It takes time for it to grow and change and impact someone's life, for them to deal with the realities and the implications of what the message of the gospel is. And there's lots of Christians who've ruined the process because they've tried to force someone to make a decision. And the gospel sometimes needs, as it were, to sprout. It's a different way of looking at the work of the gospel because we're kind of like, either you're changing or you're not, but the gospel impacts the heart and mind of people to that point where the harvest is where they finally make this decision to submit to God through faith in Christ. And so we don't control that. We cannot force it to happen. We cannot market it, and if we do that, you can ruin the crops. But the picture here that he finishes with is a little bit confusing because then he says, when the grain is ripe, at once he puts, the man puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now the two conflicting terms here is the word sickle and harvest. When you look at the idea of the sickle, the perspective is often used of Old Testament picture like Joel chapter three. And the idea of a sickle is when God decides to harvest his people for judgment. It's the same thing used in Revelation chapter 14 where it talks about preparing people for the judgment because of their evil, so they are harvested. A sickle is used to gather them up and prepare them for God's judgment. So it sounds confusing in this text and most commentators will say, well, here's the illusion. Because he uses the word sickle, it must be referring to these elements of judgment. But frankly, I don't really see that as part of the text. This, this is talking about how the kingdom of God operates and, and grows and flourishes. And I believe that the idea of a sickle is really, this is the normal tool that they would use for harvesting. And when Jesus inaugurates the new kingdom, he said many times, there's 13 references to the idea of harvest in the New Testament. Four of them in Matthew 13 refer to when down the road at the end times, 
that God's going to send his angels and he's going to harvest out the sons of the devil and the sons of God and separate them so that he gets rid of the sons of the devil and the sons of, the, of God get to enter into his kingdom. But every other reference is different in the sense that it talks about Jesus inviting his men to be praying for and involved in the harvest. Jesus answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. I'm sorry, that, that's the text that I just referred to. I don't need to read it again. So there's an end time picture for the idea of harvest, but there's also Jesus' ministry that I think lines up with the kingdom of God. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here, the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And I believe what Jesus is saying is that the nature of the kingdom here is that there's time that God gives us the privilege not only to scatter the seed, and I think for those who are faithful doing that, God will also give them the privilege to help individuals put their faith in Jesus. So the other side of the coin is, and again, we can't force it, but the question is, have you been involved in the mission of the gospel to the point where you've had the privilege to lead some people to Christ? That's a tough question because sometimes we live very sheltered lives and there's all kinds of Christians who've never had that privilege. But the question we have to ask ourselves, are we living in such a way that we're putting ourselves in a position to enjoy that privilege? Because sometimes we get our lives so busy with us and our stuff that that'll never happen. Because we're just not exposing ourselves and, and living in the world in such a way that gives us that opportunity. I was reading a story about Billy Graham and uh, the person who wrote it was uh, Harold Meyer and Marshall Shelley. They were talking about Billy Graham was so focused on bringing the message of the gospel into every endeavor. And he says, even when he was doing something like a sound check, uh, one of the distinctives that Dr. Graham did in his ministry was that he was able to have communicate a positive sense of the gospel in almost any situation. Uh, he sort of speculates here a little bit is that uh, Larry Ross is the person who wrote this, and he said he became part of the media team that was part of pub publicizing and uh, showing uh, the Billy Graham Crusades. And he was always amazed, uh, and it caught him funny, because he lived in corporate America, and then when he came over, he, Billy Graham's demeanor was so different than his, it was kind of shocking to him. And it was really interesting, even when it was an interview on TV, um, they had set this up and they were getting him ready and he was doing a mic check and you know people who do mic checks, we just babble all kinds of silly things just so they can get a level. And so corporate guys would count to 10, others would run off ABCs, they'd quote some of the stuff they were gonna talk about. But when Billy Graham did a sound check, he would always quote John 3.16. And to his corporate mindset, he goes like, why would you do that? And Billy Graham responded, he says, 
Because that way, if I am not able to communicate the gospel clearly during the interview, at least the cameraman heard it. There's some people that consider the privilege of scattering the seed of the gospels so, such an amazing privilege that they're kind of like Billy Graham's. They're always on point looking for a way to have this kind of communication. Billy Graham did it even when he's doing a sound check for, I think, a secular TV station interview. Because like the Apostle Paul, he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. And he knew that the, it wasn't on how well he preached, it was just communicating and sowing the seed of the gospel every chance that he got. I love those illustrations, and I hate them. I love them because it's inspiring to see individuals with that kind of, I want to hang around those kind of people. Because the reason I hate it is because how often I've been so caught up with my own life, I haven't taken clear advantages and opportunities to sow the seeds of the gospel in people's lives who are standing right in front of me. I suspect that if you see the idea of sharing the gospel with people as a duty, it'll probably rarely happen. If you see it as one of the greatest privileges that a human being can have in this life or the next, as it were, and that we know that nothing else will ever matter at the end of our life unless people have a chance to make this decision to accept Jesus. You can gain the whole world and forfeit yourself. You know, if you're sitting here or listening, even on live stream, and you've never, you might be a really moral person, you might be a good person, you might even believe that, any, that everyone's basically good and may get to heaven. I will suggest to you that maybe you don't understand the gospel the way Jesus communicated. If you've never made a personal decision believing in who God was and having confidence in his promise that if you simply receive Christ into your life that he will forgive your sins and remove you from his wrath. He will give you the righteousness of Christ so that you'll have a perfectly right standing before God forever and ever. And he'll adopt you into, your fa into his family so that it's at that point he now accepts you as a child of God. I invite you to make that decision even this morning. because what a shame it would be for us not to keep scattering the seed. And then trust that God's got a process in people's lives that he cares more about than we ever will. What's your story? Are you scattering seed? Do you see it as a privilege? When we step out those doors, do we see it as our mission field? Father, we are truly humbled by the reality of what Jesus came to do. And Father, as I look at the Gospel of Mark, the primary focus is on him being a servant, a servant of you, one who never lost sight of the mission, regardless of the voices and the demands and the clutter and the circumstances and the chaos and the suffering and the hardship, the dysfunction even amongst his own disciples, 
He never lost perspective of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. To call people to repent, to change their thinking about who they were, to consider the gospel and what Jesus is offering. But Father, for many of us, I pray that you will convince us to not be spectators, but that we, like an ordinary man who may not even do a good job of scattering the seed, would see that this is the greatest privilege that we have in life. And that there's all kinds of family and friends around us that maybe we haven't loved or cared for enough in order to scatter that seed. Can't force it, can't market it. You just call ordinary individuals to have ordinary down-to-earth conversations and offer people hope through your grace and the gospel of Jesus. Father, change our hearts. Help us to see our privilege. Help the gospel to reshape our hearts so that we will care about a lost world. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.